All right, so today I'd like to speak from the account found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Uh, this is the beginning of Passion Week. That is the final week leading up to the death and crucif uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today is what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, highlighting Christ's grand entrance into Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's likely the case that the events that we're recalling this morning actually took place on a Monday. Uh, so really, Palm Monday uh, is, is probably more accurate. Uh, it's the 10th day of the month of Nisan. It was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, and upon him entering Jerusalem, crowds of people welcomed him by shouting Hosanna and shouting and chanting portions of Psalm 118 and throwing their cloaks on the ground. And as the name Palm Sunday implies, taking palm branches and spreading them across the road. And all of this is really indicative of great celebratory joy that was had by the crowd. So, so here's, here's the picture as Christ enters into Jerusalem. Christ, as, as the time of his redemptive work approaches, has been getting lots of attention. Recall a little earlier in his ministry, Jesus often told people that he healed, that his time had not yet come, and so sort of keep it on the down low. But now, as his time approaches, he intentionally allows these things to become public spectacles, and he, he makes his way into the city. Uh, for example, Lazarus was already in the tomb, had a funeral, was known as, as dead, yet he was raised back to life by Jesus, and people caught wind of this. Or just recently in, in Jericho, the neighboring town that he had just traveled through, the blind beggar Bartimaeus receives his sight and, and speaks the messianic title, Son of David, in reference to Jesus. He's, he's publicly accepting the, these titles now, and he heads towards Jerusalem with a crowd following him. This event has been known as the triumphal entry. Now, I'd like to comment on the crowd before we read these verses. While the crowd got some things right, they also got some things wrong. They likely thought that Jesus was coming for some sort of nationalistic liberation. The, the symbols of palm branches were uh, also involved in the entry of uh, Simon Maccabeus, a leader of the Maccabean revolts who, who sought Jewish liberation and hoped to bring national peace. So perhaps the crowd here thought Jesus had similar intentions. And we know, for example, Peter in Matthew 16 didn't accept the description as, as of, of Jesus as one who was to be killed. So, so while indeed he received praise from the crowd, let us remember that Jesus purposefully and sovereignly enters the city to die on that same week. Just as our brother Jim was speaking, this was all a part of a plan, a grand redemptive plan, and Christ has laser focus on fulfilling this plan. That is, Christ, as he entered, did not come with nationalistic liberation in mind. He came with spiritual liberation in mind, with all humility, with all compassion and love. He came to restore mankind's relationship to God by paying for sins once and for all. That's the sort of frame of mind Christ has as, as he enters. So let it be known that every aspect of this entrance and of this entire Passion Week 
was intentionally known and planned out by God purposefully for his upcoming redemptive act that would defy all human expectations. Thus, this morning, the the title is not going to be the triumphal entry, though there is an aspect of that that is indeed true. I'm going to put a spin on it, and we're going to call the title this morning The Planned Entry. And we'll see that through fulfilled prophecy and through his own omniscience and through accepting praise sovereignly, Jesus enters the city and brings forth his redemptive plan. So Jesus Christ was intentional with every act he performed. He was never caught by surprise. Christ maintained full strength. He was not overthrown despite this upcoming death. This was all part of the plan he had to intentionally lay himself down for us. And here in the text, we see great omniscience and prophecy fulfilled and praise that is accepted all for the purpose of bringing forth a redemptive plan. And so this morning, here's here's what we'll see. We'll see that Jesus is revealed as the worthy Messiah whose redemptive act was planned by God. He purposefully enters and, and meticulously fulfills prophecy and accepts praise all for the purpose of, of being the Passover lamb and being put to death that Friday. And if you take away one thing, take away this. God wants you to radically worship Jesus who purposefully died for you. Sounds simple, but friends, the most simple statements I found I find are the ones we forget the most and the ones that are, in fact, the most impactful. So please remember that God does indeed want you to radically worship Jesus who purposefully died for you. And so we're going to break down this passage into two two main points. We're going to see Jesus sovereignly plans his entry, and then we'll see that Jesus sovereignly accepts praise. So let's look at this first point here. Jesus sovereignly plans his entry. Here's what it says in verse 1. Once again, it says, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples. Goes on, gives instructions as to what those disciples were to do. And then verse 6 says, the disciples went and did just what Jesus had instructed them. You see, in God's sovereign planning, he chooses to use people. He uses people in his his sovereign plan. Here, this epic redemptive work is about to take place. It's approaching. And Jesus himself is about to do only what he could do to satisfy the Father by paying the price for sinners, this grand work. And yet, in the peripherals of this work, Christ sees fit to use disciples to play some kind of role in bringing forth his divine, sovereign plan. How humbling is this fact? As if Jesus, who just brought Lazarus back from the dead, who just gave sight to the blind man, who even in our text here displays omniscience only had by God, needs to use these disciples for anything at all. As if he who himself would later rise from the dead, rise from the grave and resurrect needs help getting a cult. The world was created by Jesus. He could have created a cult out of nothing, but he saw fit to send the disciples to play a role into this entry in Jerusalem, to play a role in the plans of God. That is, the true hero, the true main character is Jesus Christ. 
He is planning the entry. He is performing the grand redemptive work that only he could do, yet God sends people, sends disciples to play a role. He doesn't need to, but in grace, he uses people to bring forth his planned entry. I'm always reminded of like the parent uh, that, that, you know, dad's working on the, on the car and the son's there. Here, hold the wrench. I want you to participate, you know? That's, that's sort of kind of what I envision here a bit. And it shows that he's relational, that he's allowing them to grow in faith and to flourish as he gives them tasks that he doesn't really even need them to do because he is perfect already in and of himself. You see, he graces them with participation in such an event. And what a grace. I mean, Jesus riding this cult was literally a fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus says, I am going to send the disciples to get this cult. Jesus' grand plan for his entry, it involved disciples, it involved followers, and friends, it involves us as well. We have a part to play. He, sent, he still sends disciples to proclaim his name. Different purpose, but still part of the grand plan of God. And let not the enemy deceive you. His commands are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3 says that, but his commands are a great act of grace for, for us to follow and for us to flourish and for us to have a wonderful participation in, in the wonderful purpose of God. Friends, it's clear even now that we have been graced with participation in a sovereign plan that God has. Again, he still sends disciples out to do his work. He, he has sent us to participate in his, his plans of proclaiming the gospel to all the nations by growing in spiritual and dis displaying spiritual fruit. We too have a mission and have a role, and we too are not needed, by the way. But rather, we get to obey God. We get to get sent. We get to flourish in obedience to our Lord. And, and this is awesome. We're called elsewhere in the scripture, the body of Christ, controlled by the head. That is Christ, Colossians 1.18. So the church is then to move and to act in the world and to bring forth the Almighty's plans. Will you take up that call? Will you be a part of the work and play the, the role that God is inviting you to play? Again, not the main character. Don't dare get main character syndrome here, right? But he invites you to participate. I pray that we would take advantage of that. Indeed, he is the all-powerful, all-knowing Messiah, but he wants to use you. Will you participate? And moreover, we have divine guidance. Look at what Jesus tells them. He says, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them on immediately. You see, Jesus doesn't just say, send them, all right, get the colt, good luck, bye. I got stuff to do. He gives them instructions. He guides them. He tells them what village to go to. He tells them that the cult will be uh, immediately there when they searched. Mark and Luke even, even record that he shares with them that this cult was never even ridden before. Divine knowledge guiding, guiding them as he sends them. Again, of, of this fact further proving his infinite knowledge, further proving that this was all a planned event. 
And he tells them, again, how to respond to, to, if, to those who are asking what they're doing, right? It's pretty awkward if you're taking a cult that doesn't belong to you. Uh, I mean, that could get you in some trouble for sure. But Jesus, in, in his omniscience, knows exactly what needs to be said in order to get the appropriate permission to take the cult. Meaning, his knowledge and his guidance runs deep even into the inner hearts of humans. Right? Who knows the heart, the hearts of, heart of man? God does. He knows exactly what needs to be said. He knows all things, and he guides his disciples to accomplish the task that he had graciously given them. And we also see that actually this is done later on in Passion Week as well, when he later sends his disciples to prepare for the Last Supper. He gives kind of similar instructions. Oh, you'll find this, uh, you know, someone carrying water. And, and he, just, he just knows and guides his disciples, always omnisciently guiding those he sends to accomplish his plans. And friends, likewise for us, God guides us. You know that he's given us very specific instructions and revealed appropriate knowledge for tasks that he has us participate in? He has given us a grand instruction manual of great detail, and for some of us it's sitting on our laps right now. It is the Bible. That is been shared from the mind of the almighty, omniscient God and is useful for us to do what he has called us to do in bringing about his will. Friends, be guided by the omniscient mind of Christ through the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16-17, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant, may, uh, servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want that divine omniscience guiding you? Open up the Word. You will be equipped thoroughly for the work he's telling you to do. Sometimes we feel so utterly overwhelmed with, with what God's calling us to do, and we, we can really only blame ourselves for ignoring his instructions and trying to play hero. I mean, imagine for a moment that the disciples just sort of ignored everything God said, or just, well, all right, we're off, and didn't really listen to what he said, and then they're probably going to be in the wrong town. Maybe they're like trying to figure out, how are we going to get money to buy a donkey? What are we going to do? I'm stressed. I'm overwhelmed. Maybe they steal the donkey, go on a wild police donkey chase. I don't know, right? But they didn't do that. Why? Because God provided them with his specific instructions for them to accomplish the task that Christ had sent them on. And he does the same thing for us. Verse 6, remember, it says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. That should be the same for us as well. Those tasks that God has you participate in, the participation in his sovereign plan he wants from you comes with that instruction manual from the mind of the omniscient. Open up that Bible Open up that Bible, and, and the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer will guide you in real time into truth and prompt you to obey. To, be, to obey all that He has prepared for you to do. That is the Christian life, and it is guided by God and His, His grand omniscience. And God, again, thoroughly equips you and I to participate in that. What a grace. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Next we see... Importantly, God's plans, they, they always come to pass. We know that these things, in fact, took place as just as Jesus said. 
Luke's language is perhaps the clearest in 1932. It says, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Mark overviews the actual conversation taking place just as Jesus described it. In verse 6, it indicates that they did what was instructed and brought back the cult. They got the cult. They, they obeyed, and it all came to pass. That is, Scripture is clear that the things that, that happened happened just as Jesus Christ said they would. So, so we can conclude that the Word of God is sure. Now, what is even more interesting here is that there is a double dose of this point in the text. A double dose of the certainty of God's Word. Yes, all of these things took place just as Christ had spoken them, but our text makes it clear that the wider plan of God, the whole set of circumstances of Jesus riding to Jerusalem on a cult, was also established by God's Word over 500 years ago and came to pass as Jesus entered the city. That is, God shared with... uh, through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, about the king riding the cult. Remember, prophets, what did they do? They spoke on behalf of God. And so Zechariah already revealed this plan from the omniscient mind. And it took place because whatever the Word of God says always happens. Our text says in verse 4, now this took place, what is that? That is the acquiring and the riding of Christ on this cult, so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And it says that this in fact happened. The disciples brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them, and he sat on the cloaks and he entered the city. God's Word comes to pass. The entrance into Jerusalem, it's not a mere coincidence. This was grand, divine fulfillment of the plans of the Lord that were revealed in His Word through the prophet Zechariah. Jesus is that King riding that cult that had never been ridden before. And so what we are witnessing in this entrance is the playing out of God's Word. And by Matthew pausing here to recognize this prophecy, he is drawing our attention to the wondrous coming about of God's Word. That all things are submitting to His plans and His purposes, and that His Word always comes to pass and cannot be thwarted. He rides into into Jerusalem on a cult. Humble, it says in the text. You would expect during this kind of era, maybe riding in on a horse, right? Something a little more dignified. He rides a cult, probably symbolic here of the intentional, humble work that he was about to perform in accordance with the Word of God. He is humble, Zechariah says. And here's something for us to ponder even further. If the prophecy of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a cult came true, And if his suffering, his death, and his resurrection came true, then we better believe that Revelation chapter 19 and 20 will also come to pass. That in the future he will be riding a horse, a white horse, followed by the armies of heaven. And he will establish his rule. And we also better believe what the Word says about the the judgment that God will, will perform. 
Friends, the plans of God, they always come to pass. Scripture is a certain truth. The plan that God has shared with us through His Word is one that will, in fact, be the case. The plan is that Jesus Christ is to be relied on as the sacrificial lamb for salvation and is to be worshipped by those that are His for all of eternity. And Scripture is clear. If, if He is rejected, there is also certain judgment that is spoken of in the Word of God. Friends, will we take Him at His Word? Will we be obedient and believing what He has spoken through the Scriptures? I pray that if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would consider this morning what His Word has said. That you would see Him as the humble, compassionate, and loving Savior who came to die for you purposefully as a sacrifice for your sins. I pray that you would embrace that true picture of Jesus Christ. So we see He's sovereignly planning His entry in accordance uh, to, to the Word. Right? It's coming to pass. And now we'll see also part of this plan involves Him accepting praise. Sovereignly accepting praise. Before we actually get to this point, uh, I want to say a few kind of things here. I, I want to be careful as we go into this next section uh, because it's evident, again, that these folks praised Jesus, yet they would later abandon Him at the crucifixion. And this is true, again, even the disciples, right? Peter would deny Christ and the others would scatter. And it's clear then that the disciples in the crowd, they had some misconceptions about what Messiah was going to do. That is, during this entry, they were praising the right person, but for the wrong reason. And I believe there are a few things that we need to remember before we start making applications here. Uh, number one, while the motive behind their praise might be askew, the acts of praise themselves are rightly directed and deserved by Jesus Christ. That is, if the only reason I bow to a king is to get something, that's clearly wrong. But the isolated act of bowing in and of itself is not wrong and is in fact due the king and can be gleaned from. And, and again, second, I'm emphasizing here the sovereign plan of God, what this praise eventually leads to, and we'll get there, it leads to a kind of a stirring in the city. Planned, planned praise for a purpose. So with, with that said, I have one other thing to say. Some of you with keen memories might recall the next two points. Uh, our brother Paul Johnson worded it the exact same way about two and a half years ago in our study in Mark. And um, I saw fit to keep his phrasing here because I thought it was very well done. And I'm not going to change it just for novelty purposes. That seems a little, uh, little strange if something is, comes across so clear. So I, I did want to mention that as well. But with that said, let's look at this, this point here. That is, Jesus accepts the praise, accepts praise from our personal sacrifice. And look at what the crowd is doing. It says in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. They begin by throwing off their cloaks onto the ground as, as Christ travels towards the city. This is an act of humble submission and reverence to one higher than oneself. The idea is to cover the ground that the person who's entering the city would not have any chance of even touching the filthy earth. 
And we see this act is done uh, for Jehu in 2 Kings verse 9.13. The idea here is, is this kingly reverence. This is like the ancient red carpet, but with cloaks, some have said. Now, think about, though, what they're doing. It's not a red carpet you know, that, that made special. This was an impromptu worship that involved sacrifice. It is done through personal sacrifice. They're taking off their own cloak and throwing it on the road. Imagine your nicest jacket, right? Taking it off and throwing it onto a filthy, ancient, dirty road that's going to get trampled on by animals. For many, this is probably the only outer cloak that they had. Again, a lot of these people are traveling pilgrims. They're probably not bringing their entire dresser with them like we do when we go on vacation. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But it's probably not, not their only, it's probably their only cloak that they have on them. But despite this, they recognize Jesus as important. And they're letting the cult trample over their material possessions as they welcome Jesus into the city. Now again, while the crowd had misconceptions, it is clear that Jesus is in fact due this sort of reverence. There is a sense in which they got the picture of Christ right. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is a king. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, according to Revelation 19. He is due personal sacrifice. He is due reverence. He was due all of that praise, even if the people didn't quite understand the full picture. But my question for us this morning is, how much more is He due praise from us who know the reason why He, he was entering? To love us. To die for us. To sacrifice for us. We who realize Christ paid the price for our sins ought to even more joyfully throw off our cloaks and throw them at the feet of Jesus. To sacrifice our material possessions to the King of Kings, even if it's just to show a little reverence. Why? Because He's due that reverence. And so many of us, we like to cling to our material possessions, to our televisions, and to our clothes, and to our houses, and sometimes even just mentioning a possibility of taking this and throwing it before the Lord scares us, and we get defensive, and oh, well, the love of money is what is bad, and that is absolutely true. But friends, what if, out of thanksgiving, in joy, you surrendered these things? The same joy had by that crowd. Is that a possibility? I can't say for sure. You know, like I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not my, not my job to convict anyone. But if you're not joyously throwing your possessions, do you understand who is entering the city? Do you understand who's entered your heart? Friends, are ever... It's clearly obvious the media is sending us a message regarding our possessions and personal wealth. That, that is what we ought to live for. And here Jesus is sending another message this morning. And He is saying that I am what you should live for. And I pray that we hear it. I pray that we consider how it is we can joyfully sacrifice as we welcome our Savior and King in light of all He's done for us. Next, we see that he accepts praise from our efforts. Verse 8, And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. 
People saw Jesus approaching, and they wanted to contribute to this grand entrance, this grand red carpet event. The people were excited about Jesus, and so they were moved to action, resulting in some kind of effort. They cut branches down and threw them in the road. That is, they did something. And maybe this group didn't have cloaks to throw down, or maybe some of them had already thrown down their cloaks, or perhaps they just felt so invigorated by Jesus to to actually, um, that they actually just felt that he was worthy, and so they just wanted to go through the extra effort, cutting down the branches and spreading them on the road. In any case, it is clear that these people saw Jesus and said, this man is worthy of something. He's worthy of some kind of effort from me. Some saw it in personal sacrifice. These people saw it through effort. Now again, we know what is likely the case here. The branches are identified in other gospel accounts as palm branches. These again are that symbol of Jewish nationalism and a hope for peace. Again, this was done during the Maccabean revolts as, as they entered the city as well to welcome in the leaders. Palm branches were perhaps viewed a similar way we might view like the American eagle, right? It's a symbol of nationalism. And I say that because they actually even printed some of these palm branches on, uh, on coins that they minted. Uh, they, some, some of them during these revolts had the palm branch, uh, branches right on them. It's a symbol of like Jewish nationalism and a hope for upcoming peace. And so we see the misconception here. Uh, they thought that Jesus was going to come to liberate them politically, that the, the, the peace they ha- were to have was going to be a political kind of peace. And in fact, the very next verse, the crowds shout, Hosanna, which means save now. They're expecting some kind of, sort of, some, some kind of salvation from Jesus. And so they're moved to praise to show effort by these hopes of liberation to welcome uh, in those who they took to be the liberator and the bringer of national peace. Now, friends, again, I challenge us, how much more should we put effort in with our understanding of Christ? He who gave us true liberation. He who gave us spiritual peace. He who restored relationship with the Father. How much greater is that than some physical, nationalistic idea? This is talking about humanity having union with God through Christ Jesus. How much more should we put in effort to worship Jesus? To put forth more effort than even these people who had, who had limited hopes and, and not a full understanding We ought to blow this entrance that that was had then almost out of the park with how we live. With how we daily put in our effort. We too should put forth effort in praise. Should should labor out of thankfulness unto Christ who is the spiritual liberator for us who has set us free from sin. We should offer joyous worship resulting uh, from from these facts about Christ and, and what He came to really do. To offer us peace. We should really be putting in efforts in this sort of thankful state. Sometimes it's tough to even just show up to churches. You know, I just don't want to show up today. 
Sometimes it's tough. Oh, I forgot I signed up for that ministry. AV needs me. We've all been there. But that is not the mindset of these people. The mindset of these people who had misconceptions about Christ was, I am going to praise with effort. I'm going to do something. Friends, what is it that you could do? Is there something that God is putting on your heart? Something that he's moving you to do in action and to to praise him? Consider that. Maybe it is to sign up for a ministry. But friends, do it out of joy and thanksgiving in light of who he is. Don't do it just to do it. But do it because you recognize who he is. You recognize the king coming into the city. The people, again, didn't even understand the weight of this planned redemption And they made so much of Jesus Christ entering the city. How much more should we at Grace Gospel Church? Next we see that Jesus accepts praise that boldly declares He is from God. Verse 9, the crowds going ahead of Him and those followed were shouting, Hosanna, we talked about that already, save now to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are making a declaration. This person is from God. Verse 11. The crowds were saying, well, there's a stir in the city. And what do the crowds say? The crowds say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. Again, maybe not a full understanding of his total deity, but they are saying something. They are saying, this person is speaking and a representative of God. This person is a representative of God. In these verses, this is the theme here. Being from God. First, we see the Son of David. Unmistakably messianic. That's not a title that was just thrown around. There's a gravity to it. In just a few verses, actually, we see that children are also calling Christ the Son of of David. And the Jewish leaders, they're indignant. They are outraged, according to verse 14. It's clear the Son of David is a special title for the one who was reserved to do a special thing, a special purpose, a special task. Moreover, we see in verse 11, again, they call him prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God. Another weighty claim that according to verse 11, it seems like the crowd is happy to make. The crowd is responding, what's all this about? This person's from God. That's, that's, that's their response. Furthermore, the people shout that Jesus came in the name of the Lord. That is, He represents God in a significant way. He is commissioned and sent by God. And these people, they're shouting. Some scholars believe that it was a loud back and forth type of, of chanting that was done uh, with, the, with this crowd. One part of the crowd chants one thing, the other part chants the other, and they are making a huge public spectacle, and they are saying, this man riding in on a cult is from the Lord. Again, very vocal, making a huge scene here, but again, the crowd is so close, yet they're still far. They're still, still not grasping the full picture. They rightly recognize him as a representative of God, but they fail to see the full plan. Yet they are declaring Jesus is from God. But they don't understand the full weight of that statement and the true purpose He has entering that city. And yet even in their ignorance, they are making a public spectacle declaring Jesus as a representative of God. As Jesus is from God. He is 
from the Lord. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And us, with our understanding, you guys know where I'm going, how much more? We understand the full picture that Jesus is, is the perfect representation of God according to Hebrews. He is the full embodiment of God. He is God. Of course He speaks on behalf of God. He is God. Right? And He's, he's coming into the city to die for us. How much more should we declare it and make a public spectacle out of it? How much more should we, we tell it to our neighbors and tell it to our friends and tell it to our coworkers? How much more with our understanding of who He is and His, His true intentions ought we proclaim Jesus and His identity boldly and loudly? I mean, this crowd is excited. They are chanting that Jesus is from God. And sometimes the only time that we chant is when uh, someone, you know, someone makes a touchdown. <laughs> and we'll be happy to share about, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so is the greatest quarterback alive. Fill in the blank. Right? And we'll be quick to share these facts. But then when it's about Jesus, all of a sudden, we close our mouths. Why is that? Do we recognize who He is? Do we recognize that He is from God, that He is God, and what He's done for us? That He died for our sins? Friends, I challenge you to today to boldly declare that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is God, to declare the gospel to someone. Think of someone you can share this news with as a way of worshiping and giving praise to the Lord. Share it. Share it with someone. Supermarkets, town halls, where you find yourselves, your families. Share it. Share it. Share it. Strangers on the sidewalk. I don't think these people were sharing it with everyone. Right? Share it with someone. Declare it. Jesus accepts that sort of praise. And don't be afraid, by the way, to cause a stir with this. Some of us are afraid, I don't want to cause a stir. Oh, Jesus wasn't. <laughs> and these, these people caused quite a stir here in their praise. He let them shout as his time approached. He accepted the praise even when it caused a stir at this, this point. Look at what it says in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The city was shaken. The Greek word is where we would get our word seismic, right? This is like a huge thing that is going on. And again, earlier in his ministry, Jesus says, I don't want to keep these stirs to a minimum here. But now Jesus is just saying, accepting this praise. Why? Because he's on his way to the cross. You know what this praise would result in? It caused a stir. It did. You know what it really resulted in, though? It's all part of the plan that would lead him to the cross for you and I. His time had now come. And however misguided this praise might have been with misconceptions, God can still draw straight with crooked lines. The sort of grand entrance God used shook the city. In Luke's account, verse 19, verse 39 and 40, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I mean, they're giving this, this title to him, right? Son of David. And the, the, the Pharisees, they're, they're 
disturbed by this. He's saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is a planned public spectacle. This is on purpose. He's allowing all these people to participate in it. This is the acceptance of public praise. And it's allowing everything to go just as planned for Jesus to be that true sacrificial lamb who was put to death that Friday. And ironically, the crowd was chanting from Psalm 118, uh, 118, this is a psalm, is part of the Hallel, which was traditionally used to worship during this time. Now, what's interesting about this psalm is, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Prior to that, it says this, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That is, the one who came in the name of the Lord, Jesus, was rejected and put to death. And it was planned. And he came to die to make payment for our sins. Friends, just because this praise caused a stir does not mean that it was not in accordance with God's plan. And friends, too, our, our praise can cause a stir. We're called to praise. We're called to obey. We can play a role in his plans. I pray that we do. We're certainly called to share this good news. We're called to praise Him boldly and loudly, and declare it. And I pray that we do it here in Somerset, and we do it in Fall River, and we do it wherever we find ourselves. Because nothing can stop the plans of God. And it was a grand entry indeed. It was a triumphal entry, and it was a planned entry. We see that again for... Conclusion here, just what we have already said, Jesus sovereignly plans His entry and He sovereignly accepts the praise. I pray that we would um, be transformed by these facts and live as in light of these, this, this truth. Again, for the sinner who doesn't know Jesus, He is God, clothed in flesh. He lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law, and yet still purposefully chose to come and to die as a payment for the sins that you've committed. And then he rose from the dead. And he lives. And all you have to do is believe that. All you have to do is admit that that sin was yours. That you were the sinner who offended God. And then accept that gracious, planned payment. And then just give praise to him for all of eternity. That's our job dependence on Christ and praise on Christ for all of eternity. And it is a beautiful thing. And for the saint who already believes this, declare it in action indeed according to the plans of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You for this Word. God, we thank You for the love You displayed through Your Son, Christ Jesus. God, I pray we would appreciate it more deeply this morning that we would live and let it impact our actions and that we would trust You, that You have everything planned. God, thank You for allowing us to participate in some small way. We love You, Lord, and we praise You, worship You. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.